G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 23 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5,000 podcast. And today we're, it's my pleasure to introduce Christina Lokapalu, a paediatric psychologist from the Comprehensive Colorectal Centre of Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Welcome Christina. Thank you for having me Greg, I appreciate it. We, the reason we got you on is as, as a follow-up to episode 18, we had Dr. Rebecca Rentia from the director of the Colorectal Comprehensive Centre, who spoke about the study that you all were involved in regarding the psychosocial factors affecting quality of life in patients with anorectal malformations and Hirschsprung's disease. And it's a real passionate topic of mine. And what I did is ask people in our community, parents, families, adults, if they'd like to raise some questions with you. And so we'll go through those questions soon. But can you just give us a bit of a background of your um, journey? Sure. Yeah, I'm a, so I'm a pediatric psychologist, which in the United States means that I work with kids who have primary medical conditions, who might also have mental health concerns on the side, but really focus on treating their mental health and their well-being related to their medical conditions. So that's been a journey in kind of learning about how to incorporate psychosocial aspects of care into different medical populations. And one of the new populations is uh, complex colorectal conditions with Dr. Rentia. Oh, that's great. And uh, I'd imagine you'd see a very wide variety of um, patients from younger ones to older ones and adolescents as well? Yeah. So a lot of my work is in the division of gastroenterology. So I will see anyone down from an infant up to 23 or 24. Do you talk to their parents as well? Do you have separate appointments? Yeah, it kind of depends on the patient's age. Um, Obviously, when they're infants, it's checking on parental mental health and well-being, especially having a child with a chronic medical condition and lots of hospitalizations. And then um, as they get older, they might be shared visits with the parent and the child present there for the whole visit. And then as they get to be teens and young adults, it's mostly the teen and some checking in with the parent. Okay. All right. Well, what we'll do is we'll start off with the questions that uh, we've had raised. So the the first one was, it would be helpful to provide books that are appropriate for different age children to help about help them learn about their condition and process some of the common feelings they may have with being different and ultimately learn to accept. Also, I hear parents really struggle with how much to tell their child about their health condition as well as how much to tell others close to them. I am sad when talking to a parent who says they keep it all secret and don't even tell their family. I worry that shame and isolation will negatively impact them and the kiddo more so than the possible embarrassment if they did trust a few people with the details. So, um, yeah, would you like to address that issue? Sure. I wish there was a book specifically, a children's book specifically for kids with uh, anorectal malformations. And there isn't yet. I did a, a search, but I definitely will get right on that because I think it could be incredibly helpful. One resource I did come across was um, a book called The Little Tree, and it's a story for children with serious medical problems, so may be applicable to this population. So that's the book list question. I hear very frequently from families, they struggle with how much to tell their child about their health conditions and how much to tell others related to this problem. And it's a really personal decision as a family. I try to encourage 
parents to think about their child's age and their temperament before sharing information. So if their child is is younger, they may care less if their parent is sharing information, but in their teen years and young adults, they definitely want to have some part in that decision about disclosure. If your child may be more temperamentally anxious, they may want to keep that information closer to the to the vest, for example, versus somebody who has less anxiety. So thinking about your specific child or family member. And then I think also we struggle with that conversation because it often comes out of the blue. So we're not prepared for it. And the child asks us a question and we go, oh my goodness, what do I do? (laughs) How do I answer that? And I think it's really helpful for parents or family members to practice what they want to say beforehand, make sure that they are comfortable with their own reactions about what is happening. So For example, if you've got a new comorbid medical diagnosis related to your IA diagnosis, then maybe as a parent, you need to process that before you have that conversation with your child, being comfortable saying, I don't know the answer to that, but I can ask our doctors and see what they think. And then just being clear about what you know and what you don't know and setting aside time to talk with your child if they're interested. Now, talking to other people is something I would imagine is really hard. Would you say that's accurate, Greg? Oh, yeah. Well, I come from someone who never told anyone for 52 years. So I suppose I've, <laughs> I'm not the, I'm not the uh, ideal person to talk to about this issue, I suppose. Well, and yet you're, you're the founder of this amazing podcast and group and book that brought all these people together and are reporting strength in that support. So I think building community is incredibly helpful for the management and the long-term management of chronic health conditions. The decision to disclose diagnosis is a personal one, but the decision to keep it totally secret is isolating for the child and for the family. And so more than telling people exactly what they should do, I think I want them to think about what are the costs of not sharing this information? Who would you want to tell? Do you feel like you have a partner in this? I think I, I heard an episode, a previous episode where a parent was talking about call, phoning a friend about a medical emergency. And if you don't have that person to, to phone and to connect with, it just leads to much more concern and anxiety. So forming that connection For example, at our hospital, we have both a peer matching program and a parent matching program. So you can, as a parent, connect with another parent with a child with a similar medical condition. And as a child, you can connect with somebody else with another medical condition who is much more likely to understand the things you're going through, keep everything confidential. It's an interesting one, especially now that the advent of social media groups, like um, the connection that we make with parents between each other and what, I'll, what we've recently done with the one in 5,000 is we've created a new group where it's just to connect one in 5,000 connections for children and teens, where mm-hmm. it's, it's parent who joins and then it's up to them to connect the kids. So it's not, mm. there's a bit of, they're overseeing what's happening. So I think that's really important. Follow up to the first question. Any tips on how to counter low self-esteem in our kids as they grow and learn to cope with their condition? How to proactively counter any shame or embarrassment? And how to help with underlying anxiety, e.g. cognitive behavioural therapy? 
great questions and so much to unpack there. So I'll kind of go in order. Countering low self-esteem. It is so important to identify and cultivate the strengths and interests of your child. When they can find meaning in the things that they love and that they're good at, that promotes self-esteem in any child. And I guarantee you every child with an anorectal malformation has strengths and interests. I try to ask parents to shift their focus from what their child can't do to focus on the things that they can do and what accommodations they might need to be able to do that. Really using the phrase, we will find a way as their family motto, doing the things that kids their age or adults their age do. I am a big proponent of practicing gratitude and building meaning because I think that can bring a lot of purpose to having a chronic medical condition. So thinking about on your worst days, what is my body able to do? What are the things I love that I'm able to do even with this medical condition? And then how do I create some meaning out of this thing that happened or this uh, medical condition that I don't have control over? Maybe I make a connection with somebody else and help them. Maybe I create this wonderful book and podcast and connect other people. Maybe I serve as a peer mentor, but those things really build resilience in this population and can be really helpful for self-esteem. Then if we move to shame and embarrassment, that's kind of the flip side of kind of positive mental health concerns. The short answer that's not particularly straightforward is just to make your home a safe space. We absolutely cannot control what is in the outside world. And we desire to protect the ones that we love from all of the hurt out there. But we can't do that. And by hiding the diagnosis or not sharing it, it creates this risk of isolation, but it also creates this implicit risk that maybe there is something I should be ashamed of. And that's why I I don't tell people about this diagnosis. And not to say that that's any parent's intention. It just kind of happens or can happen. So making your home a safe place, setting really strong boundaries that in this home, this child or this family member is perfect. They're loved and they're safe. You hold your boundaries with family members that there's no negative talk or disparaging comments about this individual with arm in this setting. If you want to do that, you can go outside of that house. But here, this is their safe space because that's what you have control over. And then helping them to practice discussing their medical diagnosis with a select few group of people. So if a child feels more comfortable and wants to disclose information to one or two friends, you might help them think about who's a safe friend to share this with. What do you want to tell them? What are you going to do if they ask a question? Are you comfortable with saying, I I don't know, or I I don't want to answer that? Because if they practice all of those things, the conversations when they come up will go so much better than if they go into it blind and disclose their diagnosis because they feel uncomfortable in the moment. My general rule is if you want to disclose your diagnosis to somebody else, and this people can take it or leave it if it works for them. But if you want to disclose your diagnosis, think about it, write it down and wait two days. If you still want to do it, then that may be a person you trust enough to disclose to. That's really important and very good, very, very good information. What about the helping with the underlying anxiety? Great. Thank you for the the prompt for that. 
it depends on the type and the severity of anxiety. I see lots of kids with um, imperfect anus, for example, or other anorectal malformations where they develop some kind of separation anxiety after a hospitalization because their parent has been with them 24 hours a day for months and months and months. And then they're expected to go to school and separate from a parent. And that is really hard. And so seeking help from a mental health provider, a social worker, a counselor, your primary care provider, and then depending on the level of anxiety. So there might be mild, moderate, or severe That'll determine kind of the intensity of interventions you do and the types. So they might do, if they're a teenager, cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, which changes, helps you to challenge thoughts that you have that are unhelpful. For example, my body is flawed. And then that thought makes you feel horrible about yourself, which then influences your behavior, which is I'm going to avoid social settings because I believe this about myself. So cognitive behavioral therapy would help you to challenge that thought, to do things that help you to have more positive emotions and to engage in behaviors that are what we would call goal-driven. So the things that are important to you, how do we get you to do behaviors that get you there? Other therapies are acceptance and commitment therapy, um, mindfulness training, even some, there's some emerging evidence for like pediatric hypnosis for anxiety management. And then finally, taking the stigma away from medication management of mental health concerns, if it is needed, particularly if symptoms are moderate to the severe, medication management may also be needed. And there is no reason that you shouldn't use that tool if it is appropriate for your child. Thank you very much. Now we've got another follow-up from the initial question. How would the child feel if their condition was disclosed to people without their consent? Would there be a distrust with the parent in the future? The parent says, "Hey, this is one of the reasons why I have not I have not disclosed the condition. It's his body, and I don't feel it's my right to share the details of his condition without his consent. He's a baby right now, so of course it'll be years before we can understand, choose to disclose or not. Is there any advice?" Yeah, oh, so hard. I can't. I don't envy the position that parent is in because I imagine it feels like a very heavy decision. The answer to would there, how would the child feel if their condition was disclosed without their consent is it kind of depends on their age. It depends on their age and their personality. Younger kids likely will not mind, but as you get into the late single digits, uh, early preteen years, they're going to start to want to have a say in that disclosure. And I think it's very important to incorporate them in those conversations. And as you get to teens and young adults, and even thinking about romantic partners in the future, it's really important that you have an individual's consent before disclosing diagnosis because you lose a lot of trust there and it is not your information to share at that point. And I do think it could lead to distrust if you disclose in older teens or adults without consent. And then the other thing I think is for that, that parent that was talking about their, their baby and not knowing whether to disclose or not, I don't think they're doing the wrong thing. I wondered about how isolated that would be to not have any support from other parents around this really hard medical condition that requires a lot of management and possibly surgeries and intervention. Why would you not want to seek support? If your child had cancer, you would seek support. If your child had diabetes, you would seek support. 
this is no different, but I think there is that a little bit of shame in it. And so my message to parents is fear has a place, but it's not in the driver's seat. So ask if you're doing it from fear or if you're doing it from what's best for your child. And if your answer is what's best for your child, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's right. I always look go back to an analogy Associate Professor Sebastian King in the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, the colorectal centre. He talks about a uh, parents of a child that had anorectal malformation and a heart condition. And everybody on the street and the family and friends knew about the heart condition, but no one knew about the anorectal mm-hmm. malformation. Yep. And it's just that's just the difference in the two, isn't it? And it's, it literally boils down to um, kind of territory, right? Yep. <laughs> it's what part of the body are we talking about? And what does that mean for disclosure? Now, next question. How can we reduce potential trauma associated with medical procedures in very young children who may, may not understand why things are happening to them? Oh, I love this question. And this is a passion of mine. I really think we need to work on better integrating trauma-informed care in medicine. So really working to prevent medical traumatic stress reactions in kids who undergo many medical procedures, hospitalizations, sometimes um, very traumatic medical events. So for example, I have a patient that was life flighted into a hospital after an acute injury and has really struggled with that experience. So things parents can do is first going to the National Traumatic Stress Network has some great handouts for medical providers and parents on how to support individuals who might have medical traumatic stress. Remain calm so you can advocate for your child. Explain what's happening in developmentally appropriate terms. It's not appropriate to keep them in the dark and it actually makes them more nervous. Use procedural pain management strategies. This is like my passion project. There is no reason that normal things like blood work or IV starts need to hurt. And there's things you can do to manage that pain. And kids with chronic medical conditions go through these things many more times than other kids. So they especially need that pain management, like a topical anesthetic or being held comfortably in their parents' lap rather than being held down, using breathing or distraction to help with that allowing the child to discuss their fears, offering choices when available. Do you want us to do your IV in your left or your right arm? Do you want the strawberry or the banana flavored laughing gas when we start your IV? Things like that. Create relationships with hospital staff so individuals feel safe and try if you have a young child not to leave them alone at the hospital if at all possible because we've seen that can lead to traumatic stress reactions. And the one that really stands out to me in this regard is the constant anal examinations. Mm -hmm. Um, What's your advice in that regard? Yeah. And I think it it really depends on the center. So centers that are working with colorectal patients really need to be thinking about how do you create an environment that promotes dignity in those settings? So I think we think about that a lot in gynecology. So we might have low lighting rooms and sheets and drapes, and you really have minimal exposure. And if, if two subspecialties need to have that exam, like urology and colorectal surgery, trying to coordinate. So you're only doing that once instead of twice, asking individuals to do some 
deep breathing or demonstrate their comfort level. So I would like, I would like no one else in the room. I want mom to leave or I want mom here. I would like no observers today, for example. Yeah, very important. All, right. <laughs> Offering those choices and thinking about promoting someone's dignity while also doing the appropriate medical care is so important. I've also seen centers that put like TVs or pictures on the ceiling. And I think that distraction can be really helpful. Have you treated any IA patients with PTSD from their medical procedures? Yes. I've treated patients with acute stress disorder, which is anywhere these hyperstartle reactions or re-experiencing or negative mood or avoidance anywhere from three days to uh, one month after a traumatic event and then post-traumatic stress being after that, that one month or after mark. So yes, absolutely I have. It is not all or even the vast majority of patients I see with an anorectal malformation. But things like how traumatic the event was. So for example, a patient who's life flighted and had a code event, that was definitely the stressful event for them despite other hospitalizations. But it doesn't mean it's everybody. And those are very treatable conditions if you find an appropriately licensed professional. Another question, this relates to adolescence mm -hmm. from a mother. I'd like to help on the best ways to support my mental and emotional well-being of a teenage girl with colorectal issues. How might these differ for a teenage boy with the same issues? And are there any online parenting courses, books that she recommends that equips us with the tools to support our teenagers in a world that is more complex than ever? Her child appears resilient and robust but beneath that, there is a fragility from her condition that other non-IA children may not have. I may be wrong, but if there are other things, we need to be sensitive with IA teens. Oh, so, so good. These families have so much insight into kind of the complexities of this condition. So to start, supporting the mental and emotional well-being of a teenager, I think it's really important to get with a primary care provider and mental health professional to determine really what's going on and for how long? Because acting out behavior, for example, like disruptive behavior or um, sneaking out of the home can be related to a mood disorder. We don't know unless you get an appropriate evaluation or attention problems can be related to underlying anxiety. So it's really important to know what we're looking at before we treat it. Seeking support for the patient, for their family members, for siblings, making sure you're getting that wraparound support. And then the things I start with are very basic, but make huge differences in overall mental health. And I call them the pillars of health, sleep, nutrition, exercise, and affiliation. We know that a number of mental health conditions are directly linked with poor sleep quality. So if your teen has poor sleep quality and it's not getting adequate sleep, start there. That's going to have the highest yield in terms of mental health benefits making sure they're having the same bedtime, same wake time, no problems falling asleep or staying asleep and appear well-rested, making sure that they're fueling their bodies. So I've had lots of patients with anal rectal malformation say, I skip meals because I don't want to poop in these particular settings, yep. which I understand the logic behind that. But what that does is that doesn't provide your body or your brain with the fuel to function optimally. And so that has a cost as well. 
keeping regular exercise that can help produce positive emotions and endorphins that help mental health, and then making sure you have social connections. The great news there is that it really only takes one to two friends to have an appropriate social buffer. You don't have to have 20 friends. You just need to have one close friend to have that positive benefit. And then finally for teens, they have to unplug. I want you as a parent or somebody who loves a teen to really help them unplug from devices because it's been shown that higher rates of media use, cell phone, social media, TV, really leads to poor mental health outcomes, especially when you're using social media that has kind of body image distortion that impacts girls, particularly their well-being. That may be a little bit different for teenage boys, because we know things like body image concerns and low self-esteem affect both genders, but in different ways and for different reasons. And boys and girls experience bullying differently. So girls tend to have more affiliation type bullying, which is kind of social in groups, out groups, whereas our girls do. And then boys may have some of that as well as some more physical bullying. That's not to say you can't have one or the other in either gender, but the types of stressors they're encountering are different. Also, I want to kind of just put in a plug about the, some of the comorbidities, like especially the urogenital comorbidities that can come with some of these anal rectal malformations. I think that's really stressful for a lot of teens who are starting to think about romantic relationships and what that will look like. And what does my medical condition mean for that? What do I want to do when I get older? Who do I want to be with when I'm older? And all of those things play a role and so should be discussed. Next question. I worry about the impact of trying to get my daughter to take too much medicine. We're constantly encouraging, bribing and pushing her and I feel so wrong that it's necessary. What's the best way of supporting this without causing emotional trauma? Oh, I feel for this parent. Yes. Talk about medication as a job. Parents, caregivers talk about going to work or if you're a homemaker, the things you do around the home as your job, as part of your job. And so talking to your child about their job being taking the medicine so your body can function the best possible way and you can do the things you love. And we want your input on medications and medications are necessary. So when kids start to refuse medication suddenly, I want to know why. Are there ways to make it easier? For example, the time of day, if your child is not a morning person, Maybe you shouldn't be giving them their medications right when they wake up. Maybe that causes more of a struggle. Can we change the format of medications? So is there a pill that they can learn to swallow if they're taking liquid medication? Can they put it, if they're having a hard time swallowing the pill and that's causing them to be resistant to medication, can they deliver it in a bite of chocolate pudding, for example? Other things when kids get older, they'll say, well, I don't want to take medications because none of my friends are. And it's really important to remind them that lots of kids take medications for lots of reasons. They may not be taking this chocolate X-lax that you are, but they are taking other medications that you don't have to take. And so talking about it that way. And then finally, teens and adherence. In every chronic medical condition I work with, parents want teens and preteens to be completely independent in medication taking. And developmentally, they are not ready to do that, or the vast majority are not. 
And so it can be this constant push and pull between parents of like, why aren't you taking your medicines? Well, I forget. Well, why can't you remember? It's totally developmentally appropriate that they can't. So let's put in some supports that can help them. This is probably along the same lines. Could that constant do whatever needs to be done affect child's behavior, personality in other ways? We have constant battles about changing nappies in the two-year-old, and that's so frequent as well. And sometimes even the bribery is not working anymore. What I mean is, could that translate into other behavioral problems? Theoretically, uh, depending on the interactions. So if the interactions become very contentious and stressful for the whole family, yes, it can lead to more problems. And if that's the case, the things I want you, I want you to think about these following things to make it easier because diaper, uh, diaper change battles are really common. Consider which position are you going to do diaper changes in and past rectal therapy. So if you've had to do anal dilations, for example, maybe your child associates that with a particular position. So maybe you want to change the diaper in a different position, offer them choices. Do you want to stand or do you want to lay down when I change your diaper? use distraction. That's the time to get out things that the kid likes so that they are distracted while you're doing a diaper change. Does your child have pain due to rashing due to frequent soiling? And if that's the case, then you need to work on the pain and the diaper resistance will go away. Are you so stressed as a parent about the diaper changes that your child can read your distress and then reacts to that? which I've totally been there with the alligator rolls with my two-year-olds. I understand. And they can read that energy. Offer choices when you can. And then if there's a uh, a caregiver that the child is more compliant with diaper changes with, as often as the case, using that um, dynamic. So when that caregiver is around, having them change the diapers. Right. I just want to add a question in that wasn't on the initial list, but it's one that's been um, talked about a lot recently. Do you find many kiddos come to your centre with ASD or ADHD who have anorectal malformations? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I think we see a number of patients who have Vader syndrome or Vactral association, which are also kind of higher comorbidities with developmental differences or kids who are neurodivergent. And so absolutely, we see that in these populations. That doesn't mean that if you have um, an anorectal malformation that you automatically have ADHD or autism. But I think part of my job as a pediatric psychologist is to be screening for those things that could also be impacting medical care right? If your child has sensory differences associated with autism, that's going to make hospitalization harder. That's going to make surgeries harder or can. It's going to make medication taking harder in some cases. And so we need to to identify those concerns as well so that we can treat the patient with an anorectal malformation as an entire being and not just this one part of their body. Does anyone present with ARM with ADHD or autism above what the normal average is? I don't know that I have data. It certainly feels that way. It feels like within the colorectal population that there are higher rates of these concerns, but I don't know that I have the data to back that up. Yeah, well, that's that's what I sort of like getting at. All right. Now, the next one is I would like to know more on how to deal with potential effects on siblings who, without IA, how having a brother or sister with IA can affect their, them psychologically, how much as parents should we involve them and how 
and what role can they have or not in supporting the IA siblings? So the, the research suggests that, generally speaking, siblings of children with chronic medical illness, illnesses are at risk for increased negative psychological impacts, partially because of treatment, partially because of the stress, the family dynamics, all of those things. That said, the siblings are not often offered a lot of support, nope. but there are some great supports out there, and it would be totally appropriate for parents to seek mental health or behavioral health, or even just support networks. If you're, if you go to church, connecting with a church group for the siblings to participate in or extracurricular activities, I think it's important that parents try to maintain some kind of normalcy or schedule for the child without an anorectal malformation so that they're developing meaning and interests and developing the things that they're good at so that they can feel good about themselves. So Yes. And then trying to spend as much time with each child individually as you can, knowing that my parents are pulled in 20 different directions at any given time. And those kids actually have some positive things. They tend to have higher empathy for others. Yep. They tend to go into healthcare professions. They tend to be caring people in general and take on those roles. So positives and some higher risks for siblings. Yeah, and a lot of the times I hear that parents say that their siblings have issues that their IA brother or sister gets their device because they have to go sit on the toilet for a while, but they're not allowed to have the device. Yes, yes. That's when you create a system. So the T, the patient gets their device for their morning flush routine, maybe. And then that is their thing that they earn the device for. Well, you set a separate goal for the sibling. So the sibling's goal to get their device is to complete their homework, or the sibling's goal is to complete their chore, and then you earn your device time. I think there's ways around it. Okay, here's a follow-up question from the one regarding the siblings. Mm -hmm. My two non-IA triplets had a program which they did twice to help them deal with the challenge of behaviour of, of our IA child, to identify their own feelings about it and also to give them the opportunity to attend something just for them. They also have a storybook about the condition and how it affects their sibling. I have never heard of a program like that, and it is so cool, and I want to replicate it here. This was I in the UK. That is amazing, and I don't know if it was targeted particularly for families of an individual with an IA or just a family therapy-type support. I would say that that is kind of analogous to some of the family therapy supports we have here for siblings of patients with chronic medical conditions. Yeah. I want that program here. <laughs> I'll get in touch with parent who provided this question to give you some details one-on-one -on -one about that one. That'd be great. Here's a, like a statement. More information and support are needed for the trauma the children go through. Also, the cascade effect of that trauma through the entire family unit from parent tension to sibling issues. And I suppose that that leads into a, the, the relationship issues that some parents go through as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think parents' medical trauma through their child going through this medical treatment is not recognized. And that has ripple effects on everybody else in the family, the patient's well-being, the parents' well-being. And we need to do a better job as a community, a medical community, identifying parent medical trauma. I see that massively. And 
and the other issue is too is uh, a lot of the times the mothers seek the the mental health support, but the the dads don't because men being men, they just can't bring themselves to do it. And I think that's uh, something that never gets talked about either. In your sense, when you deal with the the families, do you deal with fathers as well, or is it just mostly the mothers, or what's the breakdown? We do have a number of fathers that come to clinic. I would say most of the time it's still um, mother-driven medical care, but not all of the time. And I would say quite a few fathers are involved and seeking more support than they ever have before, which is really nice to see. So would you recommend that when the parents are seeking help for a psychological, that the, the both parents go along? I do. I do think it's helpful if I want to know the whole family system. And if only one parent comes, I don't get to see the full picture. I just get to see a portion of it. And if it's possible, I would love to meet everybody involved in this patient's um, care. Sometimes we have mothers, fathers, or mothers and mothers, and grandparents and aunts and (laughs) everybody in the visit. And it's really nice to see the whole support system. Next question. How can we help advocate for our children for mental health support, especially to the medical community? Many centres are starting to realise the need and incorporating psychology into their interdisciplinary approach, but some are not there yet. Also, even when psychology is a part of the team, a lot of doctors still think of the impact of the medical treatment plan on the child's physical health and not giving equal consideration to their mental health. How can we bring both into the conversation together? Oh, I love this question as well. I think I'm very fortunate to be a part of an amazing team that is is focused on the whole person care. We're not just focused on individual body parts or regions. We're truly an integrated team and we work together and we discuss patients. And my job as a pediatric psychologist, I try to meet every patient, not just the patients that have need, because that's what happens right now in our traditional medical model. Yes. They are seen in a colorectal center. If there's a big problem, they refer you on and it's like, okay, it's your problem now. I don't want that. I want to meet the family when they're functioning well so that I'm a familiar face and seen as a part of a team. I will see them when they're in crisis as well, but services are so much better delivered with people you already have a trusting relationship with. And I think it's so important to have integrated care in your centers where I see every patient that comes in, or I try to, so I can establish that relationship starting in infancy and then following all the way through adulthood and transition to adult care. I think if you want uh, the medical community to see the benefit, they have to see it in action. So they have to go to other centers, see how psychologists work and see the benefit because when they do, they will all want mental health care as a part of their collaborative team. Oh, you're preaching to the converted here. I believe that you can't do one without the other. That's from a lived experience. Yeah, you can't have medical care in a vacuum without quality of life. Do you see many IA children who have attachment disorders? Would be nice to know if it is a common thing and if you think it could go into adulthood and be a personality disorder or, or it can be treated as a child do you think that a child should be regularly seeing a therapist i am not aware of any studies on increased rates of attachment disorders in children with imperfect anus when i 
saw this question or heard this question, one of the things that I thought of was the high rate of interrectal malformations in internationally adopted children who have, may have been in orphanages. I, I don't know if it's unique to the United States, but we have a number of internationally adopted children that are seen in our colorectal centers. Yes. Um, and, and then they, some of them have attachment disorders, not all, but I, I often find it difficult to tease apart is that from being in an orphanage and not having appropriate attachments formed for the first three or four years of your life, or is that related to medical care? So I'm not aware of just having imperfect anus as a medical condition being an increased risk for attachment disorders in childhood or personality disorder. And I'm fully biased, and I will disclose that, that I think every child should have some consultation with a therapist. Well, as someone who never had any uh, as a child, I would totally agree. <laughs> I've made up for it in adulthood, believe me. <laughs> Perfect. You're just catching up. Yes. Now, this, is, this question is actually from an adult with IA. Okay. What's the general prevalence of personality disorders in people with ARM and can they be seen as a coping mechanism? Oh. I, I have to admit, I had to do a little bit of research on this one because I don't see adults very much. I mean, rarely do I see a patient over 21. Generally speaking, the prevalence of any personality disorder was roughly between 9 and 12% of the population, which to me was actually kind of high, surprisingly high, now that I kind of did some of that digging. I don't think that there is an increased prevalence of personalities disorders in people with ARM that we are aware of yet, at least that it's been studied. I think what's so hard is you talk about being rare and resilient when you have this rare population and then a rare mental health condition. It's really hard to find enough people to do any yeah. meaningful research. So I think in general, we can think of some personality disorders being a reaction to early life trauma. And I think it is reasonable to say that some individuals with IA have early life trauma and i think a lot of it to do being in the adult community and talking to other adults is because we have this sense of abandonment after we leave the pediatric care because there's there's been no transitional care in the in the past and that is being looked at now thankfully but i think yeah. that's contributed to it a lot yeah i mean i've had parents tell me it feels like you're dropping off a cliff and you don't know when you move from a pediatric subspecialist to an adult. Yep. So, Christina, that brings up the end of the questions. Would you like to bring up any issues that you would like to discuss? Yeah, so I have two. First, I want to really thank the patients and families for all that they do in the ARM community. I've learned so much about this medical condition and I have so much more to learn. And some of the best things that I'm able to offer to other individuals come from patients and families. So thank you. And the second is I think as a community, as a colorectal community, we need to be doing a better job of screening for body image concerns in individual with anorectal malformations in kind of looking at old surgical scars, for example, how much of that impacts their body image in having a colostomy maybe, in having um, multiple surgeries and having multiple people having to look at the anus. How does that all impact body image? And I think we don't know yet, but I think it's a really important topic. I've no doubt there's going to be so many parents who would love to communicate with you directly. So uh, what's the best way of connecting with you, doctor? I think the 
best way for folks to kind of connect, and I'd love to hear more from the community, is through Twitter, perhaps. So I'm Dr. Lo Kapalu, so L-O-W-K-A-P-A-L-U, it's all together on Twitter. Oh, that's wonderful. So, Christina, I can't thank you enough for coming on board today. I think it's going to be one of the most popular and informative podcasts we've done because it's such a topic that is so important to families and parents that that unfortunately just doesn't get addressed like it should be at the moment. So thank you so much for being so open and informative to us. It's, It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. No problem. Christina. All right. Have a good Christmas and uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. You too. Bye-bye.